HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. That was just Julietta and her new song, Runaway. She'll be performing live in studio later on. Before we begin today's show, I want to welcome you all to listening. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and also to leave us a little review and rating if you have time to do so. We have a new segment today called Snacky Tunes 5. This is going to be a semi-regular occurring segment where friends and experts share five minutes of advice, knowledge, art, whatever, on their favorite topics. To kick us off, it's going to be Jameson Fink, who was previously on the show. He's a senior digital editor of Wine Enthusiast Magazine, talking about what wines to drink this summer. This will start a little bit later in the show. But first up, Zach Palacio, Peter Barrett, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks. Thank you. Peter, we're going to start with you. Okay. Because you're to my right. And you're at the top of my list. Uh, you started as an artist. Yeah. That's where you got your thing. Um, I like that you say that you're a competent guitar player, gardener, and ceramist. Which is the, which is the best of those three? Oof. I don't know. Uh, I kind of vacillate back and forth between various different disciplines, depending on my mood or the season or what have you. It's sort of. What's the current flavor of the, of the month? Uh, not so much with the ceramics. I made rather a lot of them back in the day, and so we kind of are maxed out uh, in terms of shelf space. So I've been playing a lot of guitar. Uh, My mom made a bunch of bowls that we still eat out of. I think that if she had made more, we would have had to get a new kitchen or new shelf space. It's yeah, like that's no more. You have to like give it away or break it, and then you can fire up the kiln again. I do have some people who are uh, actually want to buy some for a, a, a restaurant that's opening near where I live, so I'll probably get going on that sometime We have summer. some Barrett Bulls at the uh, fishing game. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? yeah. Uh, do, you have the, do you sign the bottom? Where do you sign Where do you sign a bowl? Yeah, on the bottom. Okay. Yeah. So you got a BFA at RISD. you got an MFA at School of Art Institute in Chicago, and you showed for 18 years before mm-hmm. uh, moving to uh, Woodstock. Yeah, it was, 
it's kind of uh, interesting to look back now because it's all I ever wanted to do was be an artist since I was two and uh, that's what I was and then I moved upstate and put in a big garden and got really serious about my own just kind of making dinner and growing a lot of food doing a lot of fermenting and curing and the sort of things you can do when you have a garden and you have uh, a less pressured existence in the country and um, so that when I met these guys and, and we got to work on this I already sort of was uh, fluent in the language of you know fermentation and processing and growing food and things like that. So it was a, it was good uh, training for a job I didn't know I was going to get. What was the first thing you fermented successfully? Probably kimchi, I think. Mm. How long do you let it sit for? It kind of depends on how much of a given uh, batch I have and how long it takes me to get through the batch beforehand. Honestly, I have I just opened up the last crock from last winter because it took me that long to get through the one before but this one's gone faster because I brought it to some dinner parties and given some away and so it's just in a bear bowl which you left at the party I don't leave the bowls so much anymore I'm kind of done, like I'm out of extras to give away so that's why I'm about to gear up again this summer you started and when did you start writing I started a blog when I still lived in Brooklyn so early 06 February I started just a little blogger thing about what I was doing you know from what I was making for dinner just because I could and it was free and it was sort of I'd started to read some things and then we moved upstate that later that year that summer um, and I just kind of kept going but the the my sort of cooking practice really took off when we moved to the country because I had my own food and I had the space and the time to start taking it seriously and so the blog got pretty good and I parlayed that into a couple of magazine gigs um so my first professional gig writing was in january of 09 who did you write for what was the focus of the article uh it was always food hmm. um i no, which uh, what element of food oh the the first piece i wrote was for a monthly uh kind of arts and culture quarterly in the hudson valley called chronogram and it was about actually using salt to pickle and ferment and cure meat uh, just the, the many many uses of salt to preserve food what's one of your favorite things to grow in your garden or what are you best known for like, do you have, like, his peach tomatoes are the best? His cucumbers are delicious. I kind of, you know, the years really fluctuate. Last year was super hot and dry. And so a bunch of stuff just straight up sort of died or was miserable. But the peppers just killed because it was so hot. This year, so far, the strawberries are absolutely banging. And all the rain we had earlier just made the salads and the spinach and things like that just as happy as could be. So it's been a great year so far. Uh, but every year is different. The bugs are bad some years, not others. It's, it's, it's really, you know, it's a lot like wine. There, there are vintages of vegetables as well, I think. What I think was you're still known for your bowls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it particularly, like, were the um, rutabagas of, like, 13 absolutely to die for? I don't think rutabagas are ever to die for, <laughs> frankly. I mean, the, parsnips still, still, of, the parsnips of 09 were legendary. The parsnips are good. I mean, root vegetables will keep you alive, but it's hard to get too uh, rhapsodic about them, I think. I love a good parsnip. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I have to say that I, I think coaxed well, a parsnip kind of stands above the rest. I like them a lot, too. I leave them in the ground until March, actually. That's really? my secret. Yeah, I don't eat them in the fall. I eat them in the spring. When do you, I mean, you're, so how much long, like how many months does that add on to it? Well, I mean, you'd be digging them before the ground freezes so that's usually kind of around christmas give mm. or take and uh i leave them in the ground because they convert their starches to sugars as a form of antifreeze and they get much sweeter and so when you pull them like the as soon as you can get a shovel in the ground in march they've basically turned to candy and like you can even make ice cream out of them and that's also maple season so maple and parsnips go really well together in march you also won a prize study charcuterie uh how did that happen? How long did you study for? What did you learn? 
um, it happened because some people that who are now uh, good friends of mine started this sort of online, you know, this competition for food bloggers. Um, and there were 12, it was all of 2011, and each month there was a different sort of task that was set before the participants. And they started simple, and then they got fairly um, ambitious by the end of the year, um, covering all different forms of charcuterie from like a, a, you know, an easy sort of, you know, duck prosciutto where you just salt the breast for a day or two and then let it hang for a month, and that's it, um, to much more ambitious kind of pâtés and terrines and ground sausages and salami, you know, cured salami. Did you have to make it, or you just had to cut it? Oh, yeah, I had to make it and write about it, and... and um, and so, yeah, it just kind of hit at the right time, and I was feeling good about it, and I had some experience already, and I won it. And the prize was a, a couple of weeks in France um, in Gascony. I wasn't in Gascony for the full time, but I, I spent some time in Gascony studying um, with this family of butchers down there and uh, learning all kinds of good stuff and uh, doing a fair amount of eating. And then they gave me a bottle of Calvados. I'm sorry, not uh, Armagnac from my birth year, and they sent me home. Have you had it? Did you I have drink? not. I'm waiting. I turned 50 next year, so I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna hang on to oh, it for that. That's very good. And Zach just said the envy of all home cooks, right? <laughs> yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm just gonna start a blog, and then my cooking's so good that just, oh, I get to go to, oh, I get to go to France for this. Well, it was it was interesting because, you know, my cooking's so good. Well, at least I wrote about it well, and I took good pictures about it, but nobody actually tasted it. So I mean, there was a certain with a con- with a contest like this, there's always a certain element of taking people's word for it, you know, because it's not like there was a jury sitting down to eat all this food. Can you vouch that it was actually yeah, it was a, yeah. It was okay? I mean, you'll he's never, never going to reveal <laughs> like, you know, anything other. It was all the plastic like sushi that they put in restaurant windows in Japan. Yeah. Uh, and Zach, you uh, started Fatty Crab uh, in the early 2000s in our fair city. I did. That's right. Um, take us through that. What was the Malaysian flavored? Um, how did you get there? What was opening? What was the, the scene like when you uh, opened the restaurant? Well, I had uh, participated in a couple other restaurant openings after training and working as a cook for years, um, both in Malaysia and Thailand and then out in California um, with uh, Thomas Keller and back in New York twice at two different occasions with Danielle Baloud. And I thought I was going to, I was done with the kitchen. Uh, and I, I took off. I went to Italy. This was just after September 11th uh, and I, uh, in 2001. And, and I took off to Italy, and I spent three months there. I came back just before the new year. And <clears throat> I moved into a loft in Williamsburg on Grand Street between Keep and Union on the south side. Guy who owned the loft building owned a place called the Music Garage, which was on South 4th Street. And he said, I'm building this bar. That's kind of how we talked. Building this bar. I don't know if you know anything about restaurants. I'm like, well, I happen to have trained as a chef. Maybe I can help you out. So, But I don't really want to cook. I don't, you know, I don't want to do this for a living. Why, uh, did you, why did you think that you were done with restaurants? I, you know, because it's just, it's, we're, working in kitchens is grueling, especially working in the intense kitchens I worked in. And I thought perhaps I could do something that wouldn't require as much of, you know, my energy and standing up and working, you know, ridiculous hours and, you know, working with incredibly aggressive people who like to burn you and, you, you know, and <laughs> that kind of thing, both, just for shits and giggles, you know, both but, physically and then emotionally. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, I, uh, I, I, I was reluctant to get back into it, and I started building this space out. And I was working with a couple guys, and we were building it on the cheap, buying 
uh, cedar closet lining from a, a Liberty Home Store out in East New York and building out this space on South 4th Street in, in, in South Williamsburg. Built that out, and I started cooking there and getting back into it, doing some things that were unique, focused, riding my bike across the Williamsburg Bridge and buying stuff from the Union Square Green Market, bringing it back, butchering it, cooking, doing a really small menu. It was sort of an early New York City gastropub. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that sort of catapulted me to getting back into it. Some guys approached me to open a restaurant in the Meatpacking District, and that was called Five Ninth. Uh, that was just like a club, and it was a party every night. They had this third floor where after 11 o'clock, everybody would smoke and drink and do whatever else. And it was sort of the early days of the Meatpacking pack, District just blowing up into... You know, it was sort of like there was a direct door from the third floor. I think there was a slide down into APT across the street. You know, it was one of, one of those scenes. And, uh, you know, I, I really was still interested in cooking this food that I learned how to cook in, in living in Malaysia and Thailand. So one of the partners from uh, Five Ninth had taken a little pizzeria around the corner, and he had started building it out as a pizzeria. And he asked me if I could help him figure out the food. And I said, hey, why don't we do a Malaysian bistro? And he looked at me like cross-eyed. He goes, what's Malaysian? What does that mean? And so I explained to him that, you know, maybe we'll do something that is inspired by Malaysian flavors, Southeast Asian flavors, but is sort of addressing the more mainstream commercial market. And that turned into Fatty Crab. Amazing. <clears throat> Excuse me. You, you, did the, you did Fatty Crab, and then you left the city in about 2011 and moved to Hudson Valley. That's what, right. What took you out of the city, and what brought you upstate? Well, you, you know, the, the Fatty Crab was great, and, and I, you know, the, the brand became iconic. And, uh, but sometimes partnerships you know, deviate. People have different ideas of how to pursue things. And you know, the, the majority owners and uh, financial partners of Fatty Crab wanted to go one way, and I thought we should go a different way. So we decided that I would sell my shares and I would go do another thing. During that time, I was vacationing on the weekends up in Old Chatham, which is Columbia County, New York, in the Hudson Valley. I fell in love with the farmers up there, just the environment, the rolling hills. My wife, Jory, and I would just cook every weekend and we got really into cooking simply with the great products there. She, beginning in 2005, 2006, started fermenting in our apartment in Chinatown and then our apartment in Dumbo, almost getting us kicked out of our apartment in Dumbo because she was making fish sauce in our apartment and, you know, neighbors were complaining to the super and then to the owners. Um, So she wanted to explore that more. And so we just decided at some point, listen, let's make a break. Let's go up there and we'll figure it out. So we started renovating an old barn in Old Chatham. Uh, It was a storage barn, small one, about 1,200 to 1,500 square feet. And we said, we'll figure out doing something up here. And we had a friend who had just bought a building in the town of Hudson. And we were going into Hudson every now and then. But, you know, this is from 2005 on. Hudson was not much was happening. There was, you know, one restaurant you'd really eat at, maybe a bar that on some nights you'd walk into, other nights you wouldn't. You know, it was still kind of a rough and tumble town. But we loved the town. There was something about the bones of Hudson that just really felt good. And so then it just coincided while we were renovating our barn in Old Chatham, we made a deal with our friend to partner in this building in the redevelopment of it and the total gut job. And that was Five Ninth. And the idea for Five, that was, sorry, that was Fishing Game. So the idea for Fishing Game in Hudson was that we would create this place that really felt like a cool old, old home. 
sort of like a tavern. And what was funny, a lot of these buildings in Hudson, beautiful, beautiful exteriors, beautiful facades, but a lot of the insides were gutted and stripped. People were putting up cheap plaster because not a lot of people had money up there. And they were really trying to bring it back to its old glory. And we spent a lot of time and made a big investment to turn this place into something that perhaps looked like it looked when it was built in the 1840s. Um, bring, bringing the walls down to the brick, um, exposing the beams, uh, putting in fireplaces where there used to be fireplaces, but those had disappeared, um, laying down wide plank wood floors. And we opened up the kitchen, so, and we put only, only uh, wood and soapstone in the kitchen, not a lot of stainless steel, so it felt more like a residential kitchen. Try to make it easy on the eyes, comfortable, no fluorescent lights in the kitchen or that kind of thing, but making it feel sort of homey. You have one of the best sinks I've ever seen. The, the, the faucet <laughs> is just incredible. I, when I ate there, I think I sent everyone at my table individually to be like, just go, why, why do I have to go to the bathroom? Just go and take a look at it. The swan go, sink. The swan sink. <laughs> um, and then how did you two meet? I, uh, let's think, fall of 2012, I was assigned by the then editor of uh, Edible Hudson Valley to... Um, go find out what it was that they were going to be doing in Hudson because they were deep into the renovations and there was uh, sort of chatter and rumors, but nobody actually knew anything. And frankly, they weren't 100% sure what they were going to be doing yet either. And so uh, by early 2013, um, the restaurant was nearing completion and they were sort of focusing and really getting to work on on, uh, kind of uh, developing the recipes and techniques and the kind of foundational approach to cooking that was going to define the place and so we started hanging out i spent some time with them and um we hit it off really quickly and they liked the piece that i wrote um we ended up running a a revised version the following quarter in edible manhattan and in the interim i i sent them zach and joy a really short like maybe three four line email saying hey we should make a book um but it should be different we don't need the world doesn't need another cookbook frankly and i want this to be about this should be about the passage of time and your collaboration with the passage of time and in, in that these various fermentation and other kinds of processes take a year and in the case of their prosciutto it's two years fish sauce and vinegar are pretty much a year each um, and so we kind of decided that I'd spend two years for lack of a better term as artist in residence at the restaurant like with total access and coming and going and, and taking a lot of pictures and a lot of notes well, we're going to get into Project 258, which is absolutely stunning. Uh, we're going to take a quick musical break first. We're going to dip into the Snacky Tunes archives, and then we'll be back with Zach and Peter here on Snacky Tunes. Thank you. 
Zach, in 2012, you wrote your first cookbook, Eat With Your Hands, which is the most fun type of food of all time, anything that can eat with your hands. What were some of the lessons that you learned from writing that book that helped inspire the way that you approached Project 258? Um, I think that the most important lesson I learned and something that informed the process of building, constructing, and designing Project 258 is that you really have to be careful about who you choose as your publishing partner, if you are to choose anyone, um, and how that informed the way Peter and I developed Project 258 is we went out with the, the intent to actually self-publish. That way we could have complete control of design. We could say what we wanted to say, we could have it look the way we wanted it to look, and we could basically create a product that was as best as possible approximating the vision we had in our heads. Um, that's hard to do if you have, when you work with a large publisher and they have their own format for a book. They have their formula. And you have to, it's, at the end of the day, you have to compromise and you have to fit into that formula. The size of the book so they can fit into the boxes that they have, the designers that they use and their limitations, what has worked for them into the past, and if it has worked, why would they deviate? Those types of things. So Peter and I were reluctant to use a publisher in the beginning at all, and to the point where through Peter's cousin, he found a designer 
uh, at RISD or up in, in, in Providence um, who is very talented and agreed to help us design and, and had designed a couple books who agreed to work with us and we paid her out of pocket to design the book and Peter went up there and spent countless hours working with her so that we could design something that we really felt represented this idea as he said earlier about the passage of time you know the idea of slowing down and you look at the book there's breadth to the book the book is 12 inches wide you know and it's, so it's big so when you open it up there's it's 24 inches across and you get that you know left to right you actually have to turn your head to read it and it's that idea that old cinescope of you know like the Sergio Leone westerns you know the big wide landscapes you can see broad landscapes in our book and that's what we wanted to get across so you could read it and breathe and get the feeling like we all that information that was crammed in the angst that was crammed into eat with your hands which was a product of new york city life and cooking a fatty crab this is a slowdown this is lower blood pressure so we were going headlong into actually publishing this thing ourselves and then we started to realize the cost uh, after designing it, the cost of publishing it and the problems with distribution. So through a friend of mine, Diana Kennedy, I was introduced to her publisher, uh, University of Texas Press, and the guy there, Casey Cottrell. I was da- happened to be down in Austin. Casey and I met at the St. Cecilia, had a beer, hand- shook hands, and made a deal for them to publish it. They gave us money to pay back the designer that we had paid out of pocket, and they took over the distribution. You mentioned earlier about the artist in residence could you dive a little bit more into that, uh, what the process was? I know you took something like 50,000 photos for, yeah, the, yeah, for the book. A little more. For those who don't know what the, the concept is, walk us through how that is and, and how that involved you intimately with the food and, and how this took shape. Sure. Um, it, it's not a position that, as far as I know, uh, has ever existed before, but it, it, it sort of felt it felt appropriate because... A, we really wanted to spend two years, uh, which which was sufficient time to um, to be there for both the beginning and the end of every process that I wanted to talk about and explain. Um, and it also, you know, somebody asked me recently, because I haven't actually touched a paintbrush in four years, which is kind of strange, since it was always the thing that I was above all others. And, um, and I don't miss it. And the reason I don't miss it is because we approached this book very much as a sort of, while it's, I think, highly useful as a cookbook and a, and a, and a teaching tool, um, we approached it with the idea of making more of a sort of coffee table art book about a restaurant um, so that it would have that immersive aesthetic experience in addition to being really useful in the kitchen um, and as a guidebook for taking more control of, of your own food supply if that's something that you that you want to learn more about. And so... You know, it's not like I had a studio in the restaurant and I was making drawings. It's more that um, I had, by then, I had enough chops as a, you know, reporter, as it were, to be able to, like, get the facts down and get the chronologies right and, and, and manage all the photos um, and, and edit them. And, um, but it was more that um, in the, as part of um, sort of living with them, and, and seeing them weekly. I was there two, three, sometimes four times a week. Uh, occasionally I, I wasn't, but um, it became a really um, connected part of my life. And, and I was sort of of the crew and also outside the crew. And so I had the privilege of being able to be a part of anything that they were doing. I had total access. I could come and go as I pleased. And Zach would always tell me if there were sort of extracurricular things like stuff happening at their house or in their garden 
um, and then I did a bunch of traveling to meet farmers, but it was really I sort of designed my own curriculum, as it were. And the act of writing it, even though I said this to Zach yesterday, how gratifying it was that um, even though the book is entirely about them and their brilliant work and their collaborations, um, it's very much in my voice. And so I got to feel the same level of self-expression that I did when I was painting. Um, and with the same feeling of satisfaction and the same ability, like Zach said, that where we had final cut. So the quality control aspect, which I always really um, uh, emphasized when I was painting, like nothing left my studio until I, it was done, and I felt good about it. So it was the same experience, even though the, the media were completely different. It felt the same. This is a question for both of you. Do you think that there is an insight you gained or an intention that you put into your kitchen that was picked up on and expressed in the book that would have been missed had you not been so embedded in the restaurant for the two years? I mean, I think that the process of making, the process of documenting our lives as cooks, as as business people, more as, as, as creators and makers of food, you know, that by documenting it, it forced us to be more analytical. It forced more introspection because I was pausing and writing about this and we were we were slowly teasing out the book with a quarterly newsletter, the Fishing Game Quarterly, and, and that would give us pause to reflect on what was going on in the seasons. Peter would take pictures, we'd sit down and we'd look through the pictures, we'd ha- he'd ask questions, and it wasn't like the typical cookbook process where, you know, you have a, re- a restaurant and you've got your collection of recipes, you hire somebody who can provide the requisite blurb before each recipe and, you know, and sort of help organize your book and get it out for the publisher. This was a real, this was, this was a documentary and it was, it was a period of time. And while it's timeless and, you know, it, it, it reflects the way we cook, it was a specific period of time. And during that time, it really forced us to analyze everything that we were doing, look at it and reflect on what we were doing while we were actually doing it and help us evolve and, you know, it wasn't like, okay, I'd already come up with this recipe. The recipe's dialed. Now I'm just going to tell you, the journalist, the writer, about how I came up with it. We were coming up with it almost together. It was, it was collaborative in the sense that he's a mirror we were bouncing images off of. And then for you, any insights that you felt were picked up on because you were so embedded in the process? Well, yeah, I mean, if some of it was just a, simply a function of, of, like Zach said, just being there for two years and making what is essentially a documentary rather than, you know, there's a, there's a lot of books are made, um, and justifiably from a business point of view, with a sort of hired gun photographer who'll come in and shoot all the plate shots in two weeks, and then that's it. Um, this was very much the opposite of that. And, uh, uh, in fact, all the people shots in the book are candidates. There's not a single pose shot. I never asked them to do something again. I never said, could you stand over here and do that? I never did that. Um, and all the plate shots, even though they're obviously sort of posed because they're not moving, um, the plates that I shot are the plates that the kitchen sent out to me, which were the same as the plates that the diners downstairs were, were getting. There was no, there's no um, styling, um, yeah, there's no styling. No food styling. No food styling, no tweezing of anything, no subbing of, you know, Crisco for ice cream so it wouldn't melt. There's, there was just zero of that. So, um, the, but the, to answer your question rather than ramble, it, there's a picture, um, of Zach slicing their very first prosciutto. Uh, and because of the time that I was there, 
on either the facing page or the next page is a picture of that ham in February of 2013, which I think was the first day I set foot in the building. And it's the same ham that 15 months later I show Zach slicing. And so you just can't get that. You can't get it to the same leg from, of, you know. And, and so that continuity, um, to be there on the day that the, the new fish sauce is made and the day that the previous year's fish sauce is strained out, that the, there's, there's a sort of cyclical seasonal nature to a lot of what they do. And because we set two years as my kind of data gathering period, I was there at the beginning and the middle and the end of all this stuff. And so it's just, there's no substitute for that kind of immersive taking the time. This is like slow publishing, you know, it's the, 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 book, <laughs> the book equivalent of slow food because it takes that long and you can't you fake heard it. You here first, slow publishing. Last question. Yeah. Project 258. Where does the 258 come from? 258 came out of a conversation that Jory and I had. Um, it was a working title that I'd given to the book while we were, because it was basically just like, oh man, there's so much to do. And, you know, we had a cow, we were milking the cow and we, you know, we're planting artichokes over one garden and we're, we're foraging greens over here and we've got to get this chili, fermented chili sauce on and that vinegar's ready to come and we have to go bottle our cider. And I'm like, this is just the, doing the book is just like project number 258 in a long list, an ongoing list of projects. And then Jory and I had this conversation that we actually ended up documenting, and it's in the front of the book, and you can read it. And I was talking back and forth with her about, you know, I don't know, what do we call the book? we got to give it a name. I just don't know what to call it. And why don't we, she's like, why don't you just call it 258? I'm like, I don't know about that, you know. And she said, just don't be stupid. Just call it Project 258. It seems to make sense. And, you know, she's the pragmatic one generally. So I went with it. Well, shout out, shout out to Pragmatism. Also, a big <laughs> shout out to Kevin as well, who was a big part of this book. Um, I want to thank you both for being on the show. Where can people buy it? Follow you guys. Get a bowl. Yeah, um, <laughs> get a bowl. So BarrettBowls.com. Better run out and buy that. Huh? Um, but you, the book is everywhere, uh, online and in stores, and uh, and you can you can go to project258.com. That's right. We do. We did buy that URL. And the um, website is very very beautiful. It's Sarah Rainwater, the designer who made the that laid out the book for us, also built that site for it as part of. But it, it is so it's de- definitely a big shout out to to Jory Jane MD, uh, who is sort of the heart and soul of fishing game, who does. All the who basically is responsible for our larder, all the pickles, fermentations, sambals, chili sauces, etc. And she does that. She also sells her own stuff on LadyJane'sAlchemy.com, yeah. which is very cool. And uh, and I think you can find some of her stuff at Foster's Sundry here in Bushwick. Yeah. Um, and of course, Kevin Pomplin, my co-chef and partner, who uh, is the guy that keeps the wheels turning. And, and Zach's at Zachary Palacio, I think, on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm either. I'm cook blog on one of them and a cook blog on the other. So something it was already one was taken and one was not taken. Pretty much, yeah. That's that's the blog name too. So it's uh, it's that's where you find me. Well, thank you guys for joining us. We're going to take another musical break from our archives, and we are going to run our very first Snacky Tune fives, and then we'll be back with Julietta live in studio here on Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Thanks.
This is Jameson Fink. I'm senior digital editor for Wine Enthusiast magazine. And right now I'm standing in my sweltering Brooklyn apartment. It's summer. I have no air conditioning. I've had to turn my fan off to record this segment. I also have a pile of laundry fresh out of the dryer that is uh, steaming almost. So it's like a kiln slash sauna in here. But I want to talk about the kind of wines that I'm thinking about drinking in this environment. Um, and I have three words to start with. You must chill. That's right. You must chill. Chill your red wines. Uh, usually I'm just chugging, uh, crushing, chugging, pounding, uh, light, fresh rosé and white wine. But hey, even sometimes in the summer, maybe I'm eating some burgers or dogs outside. I want a red wine. But uh, mini rant, we drink our red wines way too warm. Like if it's sitting out on the counter, it's too warm, especially in this apartment. Red wine would probably start boiling here. It'd be awful. It'd be a nightmare. 
So uh, here's a tip. Um, any red wine, uh, really, but I'll give you some specific ones in a little bit. Just put it in an ice bucket for 15 minutes or put it in the fridge for an hour, and I think you'll be floored at the difference in flavor and, frankly, pleasure. So um, four wines to look for. I'm going to give you uh, four grapes um, from around the world. One would be Gamay. Uh, that is the grape of Beaujolais. So go find a good Beaujolais. Uh, something that says either I would say Beaujolais or Beaujolais Village. Um, the top wines from Beaujolais are, are the Cruz, and there's 10 of them, but I'm not going to pound you with uh, the names of 10 Cruz, although, of course, I know them and can recite them alphabetically. But uh, if you go to a wine shop and say, hey, I want a Cru Beaujolais, it'll probably be like $20, $25. Beautiful wines. If you like Pinot Noir, um, these are the wines for you. But just a Beaujolais or a Beaujolais village from a really good producer is going to be perfect. Uh, another grape to look for is Frappato, and that's a uh, native grape to Sicily, and I love it. It's probably my favorite pizza wine. Um, I'll have more on my favorite pizza wines, but I'll just give you a little tease there. But Frappato, just a light, fresh, beautiful grape, beautiful red wine from Sicily. And um, if you want something a little uh, brawnier, there's a wine that's a blend of Frappato and Nero d'Avola. Nero d'Avola is a little more of a, a bolder, richer red, and, and those wines are called uh, Cerasuolo di Vittoria. It's a specific uh, region that produces this wine. But just look for Frappato, ask for Frappato. Great wine. Um, a third one would be Zweigelt, which is Austria's signature red wine grape. Um, you know, I, I drink a lot of... Uh, easy drinking Zweigelt. There's also, you know, fancier ones that are more expensive and, and more long lived. But, um, I really like the cool thing about Zweigelt is there seems to be a lot of producers that put it in one liter bottles. And I love the one liter bottle because why settle for a standard old boring 750 milliliter, get a bottle that has a third more wine in it. And, um, Hoffer H O F E R is a great producer. Um, and they have a fun, uh, little bottle cap topped one liter, um, bottle. It's, it's really adorable and, um, and it's great at parties. Um, the last chillable red I'll mention is Cabernet Franc, um, specifically from France's Loire Valley. Just say, I want a Loire Valley Cabernet Franc now. Um, what I like about Cabernet Franc from the Loire is that, um, obviously it's a, it's a, it makes a, a fruity wine and grapes are fruit, but it has a lot of savory characteristics too that I find appealing. I call them technically non-fruity flavors like, um, mint or herbs or bell pepper, a lot of green flavors or olive. And uh, sometimes people use green as a pejorative. Uh, I think it's a bonus. I think it makes wines more interesting. Do I want my wine to taste like green bell peppers? Mm, nah. But do I want a little bit of that, a little bit of that flavor to come through that makes it really interesting? Yes, absolutely. And um, finally, like if you like to drink Zinfandel or Cabernet Sauvignon or um, Syrah or really any red wine, I, I I beg you to try and chill it before you drink it because you'll read like, oh, drink it at cellar temperature. But look, I live in a, like I said, I live in a, an oven of a Brooklyn apartment without air conditioning. Like I, I don't have a cellar. Uh, I have a basement, but there's nothing in it but a washer and dryer, which would be bad because it just gives off heat and vibrates and destroys your wine. But um, really just take any $10 wine, get two bottles of it, put one in the fridge for an hour and the other one just leave out on your, on your counter. Hopefully it's not my counter, so it doesn't boil. But, uh, and then just pour it in two glasses and like serve a bunch of friends and say, I want you to try these two wines and see what they say without telling them that it's the same wine. I think you'll find it remarkably different. And like I said, my benchmark is like 10 or 15 minutes in an ice bucket with water, ice and water, 
or about an hour in the fridge. But you know what? If you leave it in the fridge for three hours, you're leaving that ice bucket for another half hour. I mean, it's hot out. Just pull it out of the bucket or the fridge. It's eventually going to warm up, and it's really fun to um, see how the wine develops and changes flavor uh, and really everything, texture, aroma, as it uh, warms up. Just don't want to get warm, warm. So um, if you want to read more about this, you can go to winemag.com, and I have an article called Four Red Wines You Can Chill for Summertime Fun. And thanks for listening. Bye. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. As many of you know, this show is only possible thanks to member donations. We would literally not be able to reach you every week without the generosity of HRN members around the world. And now is your chance to join the club because the HRN Summer Membership Drive is back. Becoming a member is super easy. It comes with a limited edition summer swag like t-shirts, drink koozies, and pins for your sweet jean vest. You can sign up for a one-time donation and become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate right now. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves for the summer. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Julieta, welcome to the show. Hello. And hello, Thank Cornelius. You. Hey. How's it going? You are a born and bred New Yorker. Yes. Very rare breed. And you still live here. Most yes. of them like, escape. <laughs> what is it that kept you in the city? And how did the city influence the music that you make? today Oof, this question is uh difficult because i am very um the type that loves to run away and uh to just get out but new york is just everything is here so it's kind of hard to get used to anything else but i love to just get out and to explore and then realize how amazing new york is and then come back <laughs> do you have a ritual when you come back is there a first thing that you do or a first place that you go eat at my mother um, is an amazing cook. Uh, she's Italian. They're, my parents are Sicilian. And every time everyone's like, oh, what's your favorite restaurant in New York? I'm like, honestly, my mom's kitchen. What is mom's specialty? <laughs> the pasta, like any pasta. Um, From scratch? Yes. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Sorry. I'm so sorry that I asked. <laughs> you just yeah, shot yeah. me a look. It's, how, uh, how could, <laughs> what other way is there to make pasta? I didn't know. A, I've never it's seen funny. It. It's like this reoccurring thing because whenever my friends are like, you want to come over and uh, we'll make some food, we'll make a pasta. I'm like, yeah, for sure. I'm so excited. I come over and some pe- sometime they open like jars of like pre-made sauce that they find somewhere and I'm like, <gasps> what is this? <laughs> we make our sauce from scratch at Snacky Tunes. Yeah. I've, I've never been able to, once we started making it from scratch, I've never been able to go back. There's just a thin wateriness that doesn't, or sometimes if you have to get it from there, you have to reduce 
reduce it mm-hmm. from the jar just so it tastes a little bit like something. Yeah, and honestly, like, it's so simple to cook. You just, like, put things together and you just put a little bit of love into it and then you and get... just some time. Yeah. Put on a f- couple favorite records and it's done. Yeah, patience. And what else besides the pasta does, does mom cook oh so well? Uh, Milanese, really well. And I grew up without frying things. My mom just doesn't fry, so everything is baked. So it's great because it feels like it's fried because it's really crispy, but it's healthy. Do you cook as well? Yes. What is your specialty? Um, my specialty would be just to throw a bunch of random things together and make it taste really good. <laughs> yeah, so it's like kitchen kitchen cooking. Yeah, yeah. Kitchen yeah. fridge. Super like home yeah. warm vibes. And you also spend your winters in the jungles of Nicaragua. I did this year. Yeah. How did you find that place or how did it call out to you? Um I have a bunch of friends here that do really cool things, and uh, one of them happens to be one of the guys that started Madeiras Village. And what, what is Madeiras Village? It's this community in Nicaragua where um, you can go and stay there. It's kind of like a hotel, but they also have a yoga community, music, surfing, so you get to do pretty much all of that. Um, with super cool artists that come through all the time. There's a really cool recording studio there, so that's why I was just like, yeah. You're like, hmm, <laughs> are you, oh, when, <laughs> when's the studio open? That's when I'm coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what was it about being in Nicaragua that inspired your music or helped fold itself into the way that New York inspires you? Well, they're, com- they're completely different. Um, there was no time there. There's no watch. There's no gotta go, gotta be there, gotta do this, gotta do that. It's kind of just like do whatever the hell you want. Um, and here it's always like, oh, sh- I have so many people I got to go see and so many things and the subway and this and that. So it was really just freedom that inspired me. Can we hear a song? Sure. What are you going to play for us first? I'll play you the song that uh, I wrote there called Beach Break with Jack Goodman that is in L.A. right now. Cause I'll move, I'll dance, I'll show you how to dance, baby I'll dance, I'll show you how to dance I'll move, I'll dance, I'll show you what I'm working with See you looking over my way Oh, I'll pretend as if it was the first What's the problem? Did I affect you? We saw this coming, but will you stay? Cause I'll move, I'll dance, I'll show you how to dance, baby I'll dance, I'll show you how to dance I'll move, I'll dance, I'll show you what I'm working with We wanna dance, but we're swimming in a black hole Pretty girl in the red dress Never thought this could be such a mess Cause I'll move, I'll dance I'll show you how to dance, baby I'll dance, I'll show you how to dance I'll move, I'll dance I'll show you what I'm working with Show you what I'm working with Show you what I'm working with You mentioned Jack as your co-writer on that song. Yeah. It's pretty interesting how it came together. 
Yeah. You met him randomly. Right. So um, I had a runaway moment, and I decided to go to L.A. for a month and see what I could find. Um, And so I was there looking around, playing with some people, and then five days before I had my ticket to go to Nicaragua, I was uh, meeting with this guy named Jack. And he happened to go to the... I went to Emerson College in Boston, and he happened to uh, be there the same exact time that I was there, and I never met him before. But in L.A. we met, and he showed me all these tracks, and Beach Break was one of the tracks that was in his folder. And I was just like, these are amazing. I would love to write on these. Um, Thing is, I'm leaving in five days, and I'm going to the jungle. You should come with me. There's a studio there, and we could have an amazing time. And he's just like, who is this crazy girl being like, come down to South Central America with me? Anyway, convinced him somehow. And um, Is it really that hard of a sell? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except for, like, people that don't know how to take risks, it's hard. Sure. If you're, if you're adverse to adventure and saying yes, it's, right. it's pretty difficult. It's, yeah. So anyway, second time I ever saw him was him roaming around in the jungle lost. <laughs> and I was like, hey, dude, what's up? <laughs> so then we became close and we started writing together. And then, um, yeah, we brought the track back and another friend, Stray Echo, helped us tighten it up. And that's what it is now. And there's some sounds from the jungle that are on the track, on the recorded track as well. Yeah, in the opening, you hear the jungle sounds. That it was just so much going on there, and so beautiful that I wanted to somehow figure out a way to take a piece back. So I told him to go out there and record the sounds, and we ended up putting it in there, which is like a thing that I actually really love to do because I did it again with my next song. It really sets the stage for it everything you know, when it's pre-recorded you just kind of don't know what the surroundings are but it really gives you a sense of and we heard the recorded version of Runaway at the beginning of the show and you can hear you walking down the street yeah. and the airplane which we'll get to but I think for uh, Beach Break it's really amazing to hear just the mindset and the actual location mm-hmm. that you're in totally what are you going to play for us next? Um, this next song is called Hypnotize I wrote it um a couple of years ago with Strayaco, but I never got to release it, so here's a little special thing for you guys. I was standing by the tracks as the sweat hit my face. And I was swaying to the memories of your mistakes And as my mind was floating off I felt you grab me in my ragged face And I didn't want to see you but we touched and now I want you to stay Hey, hey You got me hypnotized Oh, hypnotized Mesmerized Oh, hypnotized Keep on hitting me up as I'm making my way through the day. I try to close you 
to quit you Cause it's harder when you try to make me your mistake Hey, hey, you got me new single runway has a similar origin to beach break about meeting a random guy yes and having a a chance encounter right (laughs) you met at a party and he invited you to come see him in italy right um and at first i was like that's crazy why would i do that i mean is it the same crazy that i mean come to the jungle jack (laughs) and i were strictly like uh professional (laughs) And the runaway was more him just being like, why not? We should just, like, go and have fun. And um, I'm all about adventure. And as, like, some people are like, what the hell? I'm just like, what? Why not? (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I went. um, And I got my Airbnb. I would be safe. But uh, but I went. And it was an amazing weekend just because... I just love being uncomfortable and finding ways to figure it out. It's just a great way of growing, you know. I like that he sent you the tickets in November, but the trip wasn't until about March. March. <laughs> how did, did he? How often did he check in? Every month he was like, hey, so are you still thinking about coming? I'm like, yeah, well, the ticket's there, I guess. Uh, we'll talk in another month. Let's see what happens. I mean, that's a really <laughs> slow and steady right. type of game. Right. Yeah, totally. But I mean, like, I, I'm living my life. He lives his life. I'm like, sure, we can have fun in a weekend in March. Just like, I'll talk to you later when that happens. <laughs> how was the food? I mean, the usual amazing, yeah. It doesn't matter where you go, everywhere you're going to stumble into is amazing. Do you have a particular favorite food memory or coffee or spritz or all of them together? I mean, yeah, I had a amazing... Pesto is, like, such a simple thing, but when you do it right, it's like home. You know, it just feels like I'm in my bed, like, cuddling. <laughs> so I had an amazing pasta con pesto and burrata, obviously. And But I was literally only there for, like, 48 hours, so it was just, like, four meals. <laughs> Six months for 48 hours? Yeah, quick. <laughs> Must have been a, a good chance encounter. <laughs> totally. But it's that's the reason why it was so crazy is because it was so short and such a like random thing. If, if I were to stay there longer, it probably wouldn't have been so like fiery. you know. Right. It's like first night, last night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so good to see you. I can't believe I'm leaving. Bye. <laughs> Bye. How did the song come out of it, the trip? Uh, so basically... Uh, my friend Stray Echo sent me the track uh, for Runaway to write on. And as soon as I got it, I was about to run away. So I wrote the chorus, I'd run away with you. And then while I was there, when I was getting to know him and getting to know the situation, I started writing the verse um, and the sounds I took right away because I knew that it would be like a cool thing to add to it. And what are the ambient sounds that you... Where are you located when you're recording the field? So the first... The opening is me walking um, along the Fiume, the river, uh, next to the old bridge that they have there. 
And I was literally walking to go meet him. And I thought I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to take these sounds. And then when I was leaving, I was like, I should just do the same thing. And when I was getting on the airplane, I took out my phone and, and even got the stewardess on there. <laughs> if you want to go and listen to the opening of the episode, you can hear the airplane, mm-hmm. which is a really cool way mm-hmm. to, to pull the track together. Yeah. And you have a sh- record or a song release uh, party coming up later this week. Yes, we are performing at New Blue um, on Avenue C Thursday night around like 8 p.m. And what can people expect for a song release party? I mean, just super cool people, my friends and fans, and also another friend of mine, Cold Trickle, is going to be DJing and he plays great music. So it's just going to be like good vibes. Amazing. Yeah. Good summer vibes. Yeah. It's summer. Vibes. Yeah, exactly. Feels like it. Uh-huh. We want to make time, make sure we have time for one more song, but where can people find you, get the songs? Uh, yeah, we're on Spotify and iTunes and all the above, SoundCloud. My website is juliettanyc.com. You can find some stuff there, or you can just look up Julietta um, online and find the songs. Perfect. Yeah. Well, we want to thank Peter and Zach for coming by. We want to thank Jameson for kicking off our Snacky Tunes 5. Big thank you to Kong and Darren as well, and David out there in the booth. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week with another live episode of Snacky Tunes. What is the name of the song that you are going to take us out with? Runaway. Perfect. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for coming by. Thank you Thanks for, for listening. Us. We'll see you next week.
Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.